This week I read an article about the rise and fall of something called secular church. This is a new concept to me, but apparently they exist, especially in larger cities. Secular church, it's a, it's a place where people can gather on Sunday mornings to sing and to enjoy fellowship and community just without God. And so instead of singing Amazing Grace, they might sing Living on a Prayer. Instead of a pastor preaching from a Bible, they'll have a TED Talk with a local artist or a local professor to give a message about life. Uh, but, but the whole idea revolves around this longing for church experience and church community just without the church stuff, without religion. But as quickly as these gatherings sprouted up, the article says they've been falling apart. And the reason given in the article is this, a lack of transcendence, a lack of something greater than us worth giving our lives for. Or you could put it another way and say that the church without God is dying due to the absence of God. Now that may seem like common sense, but it got me to wondering. I read the article and I started to think, you know, how, how different really is secular church from Harvest Church? I mean, obviously we sing songs from people like Fanny Crosby, not Bon Jovi. We, we preach from the Bible. We don't do TED Talks. But at the end of the day, is the difference really, is it just a matter of belief, of confession, that we believe in God and, and they don't? You know, surveys are, are always telling us that religious people in America are not really all that different from non-religious people. There, there's an obvious difference in confessed belief. We believe in God. But when it comes to behavior and values, there's very little discernible difference between the two groups. But shouldn't belief in God be greater than that, more impactful, more significant than that, more than just a checkbox on a, on a survey? Yes. Yes. And we, we're in church. We all know the answer is yes. But how? I mean, how is it that the Christian life really is distinctive and, and deeper, greater than just what we confess to believe? How is it more than just believing in God or believing in Jesus? Well, there are a lot of places we could turn in the Bible to answer this question. Uh, but for today, let's, let's allow Jesus himself to give us uh, a very clear picture. Um, he does it through a parable in Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13 is a chapter where Jesus gives several parables, seven in all, I believe. <clears throat> but what a parable is, a parable is a short story that communicates a deeper truth. Uh, some people have said, a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. That is to say, Jesus was using little stories about uh, agriculture, about seeds or crops. Maybe he talked about a, a story about a man or a group of people. And it's, a, it's, a, it's a, not a real story. It's an illustration of a deeper spiritual truth. That's what a parable is. Well, here in Matthew 13, Jesus is giving us parables about what he calls the kingdom of heaven. So before we get into the, to the scripture itself, let me try to describe in short form here the kingdom of heaven. When we see that term, or in other gospels it's called the kingdom of God, same idea, that it describes life under the sovereign rule and reign of God. And more specifically, the kingdom of heaven is a life lived under the saving grace of Jesus. So to be in the kingdom of heaven means that you know and trust and follow and worship Jesus, and that makes you a citizen of a new country, as it were, 
a new reality where God is king over you uh, and we live now for his glory and we enjoy him forever. Now that's a really big concept, which is probably why Jesus often explained the kingdom of heaven in simple little parables. He gives us little illustrations, little descriptors, like this one. This is Matthew 13, beginning in verse 44. Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again, and from joy over it he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls, and upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Can I tell you up front that there is some debate over the meaning, the real meaning of this parable? Um, There are two primary uh, ideas about what Jesus means here. and uh, there are a lot of guys that I respect and admire, but I differ with them on the interpretation here. And that always makes me a little nervous. So I'll just share both of them with you here very briefly. The first is that, that the man or the men in these parables is meant to represent Jesus. And the treasure, the treasure is us. And Jesus so treasures, so values lost sinners that he is willing to give away all he has, even his own life, to save us, to possess us. Now, I think all of those things are certainly true, but at least on my part, I, I view this parable differently. And so here's how I understand it and how I'll preach it. That the men in these stories are, are meant to represent us. This is the person who enters the kingdom of heaven by faith and the value of God's saving grace becomes to us a treasure unlike any other. Or to use uh, John Piper's term, this is a treasure so great that even if you lost everything else, it would be a happy trade-off because of what you receive in its place. And so as as we look at these parables, this set of parables today, You know, we're not going to have to give a ton of time to explanation. They're meant to be very simple, easy to understand and explain. But my hope is that God would use the word today to press his grace more deeply down into our hearts. What we need today is probably not more knowledge, but we need a deeper understanding and appreciation of the treasure of his grace. And so that's my prayer as we walk through this parable. So look at it again with me. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, right? You know, in Jesus' time, uh, there weren't a lot of banks on every corner like we have now. You didn't didn't take your treasure and put it in a bank. And in fact, a lot of times treasure wasn't in the form of coins and and bills. It was gold and silver and jewels, family heirlooms, things like that. And if you had treasure, what you would do with it to keep it safe is you'd bury it. Dig a hole on your land and put it in the ground and cover it up. But you know... People died, Uh, land got sold or overtaken, war might break out, and it was common that buried treasure stayed buried. It was forgotten and left behind. So, Jesus says, suppose that somebody comes along and finds a treasure, and what he finds is so truly awesome, so valuable, that it almost stops his heart. So he covers it back up and he runs home, and he liquidates all of his own assets. He sells off 
every single thing he has in order to buy that whole field for himself. Now, you know, some of y'all might be like me and you, you get lost in the details kind of easily. You might be looking at this story and saying to yourself, is this ethical? You know, is what this man does here, is this, is this right that he hides the true value of that treasure in the field and buys it from the rightful landowner? But, you know, y'all, we, we miss the point in that case. This is not a real story. This is a parable. It's fiction because it's, it's Jesus' way of showing us something greater than itself. And the point of the parable, I think, is very simple. That there is a treasure so valuable that it brings overwhelming joy and absolute commitment. I'll say that again. There is a treasure, Jesus says, so valuable that it brings to us overwhelming joy and absolute commitment. Let's think about it this way, okay? The, the treasure in the field, how much is it worth? I mean, in, in terms of dollars, let's, let's factor in inflation. No, see, Jesus doesn't tell us. He doesn't give us a number because that's not the point. The point is not the numerical value. The point is the treasure itself. How much is it worth? Well, we can tell from the story it's worth more than the field it's buried in, and it's certainly worth more than everything this man owns, right? See, this is a treasure so great that it places this man's entire world in new perspective. It busts all of his previous categories. Nothing is now more valuable to him than this treasure. So, I, you know, we're talking about spiritual treasure, of course, so it should be clear already that what we're talking about today is something far deeper, far greater than just believing in God and checking the box on a survey than just holding to a confessional belief in Jesus. As important as that is, there's something obviously deeper, greater, more to the Christian faith, right? Y'all, to, to enter into the kingdom of heaven is to discover a treasure so impossibly valuable, so category-busting, that your entire life is changed by it that you cannot see the world the same any longer because of what you've discovered and what you've received. Does that describe your relationship with God? Does that describe your relationship with God? That, that's a question that puts a lump in my throat, honestly. Because I know that I value God. I value God quite a bit. But is he the overwhelming treasure of my heart with no comparison and no competition to be found? See, that's a different question. Or maybe we could ask the question like this. Are there any buts in your relationship with God? Do you ever say in your own heart, I will love and obey God, but God cannot tell me how to spend my time. But God can't dictate how I spend my money. I'll love and obey God, but I will not walk away from, from that sin. I will not turn away from that thing that God says to leave behind. I'll love and obey God, but I will not risk my reputation. I will not sacrifice my comfort. I will not go there. I will not do that. Listen, whatever is on the other side of that but... That's your real treasure. 
That's the thing that you simply will not sell, you will not lose in favor of God. You either hold it up as equal to Him or greater than Him, that if if it comes down to choosing between God and that thing, whatever that thing is, then God has to take a back seat. That thing is worth more to me than the kingdom of heaven. Let me just call a spade a spade. Y'all, that's why we have to see into this parable what's really happening. This man did not simply add a new treasure into his already crowded portfolio. No, this treasure becomes singular to him. Nothing else on earth could compare or compete with this treasure. And that's how God is meant to be to us. That's how Jesus is meant to be to us. Now, we, we may stop right here and say, gosh, I've, that's not me. And I've got so far to go. How, how, can I, how can I possibly treasure Jesus like that? We're meant to feel the weight of this, okay? This, this is not meant to be a cute parable. It's meant to convict. And so if you feel the weight of this sense of, of God is not this kind of treasure to me, then we need to sit in this for a little while and allow God to work on our hearts. So let, let's, let's just keep going here, okay? When the man recognizes the great worth of this treasure, what does he do? Jesus says... He leaps up, and from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has to buy the field. Now, this may seem like a small detail, but it's not. When does the joy enter into this man's heart? It's before he owns the field, not after. The story does not go that the man went and sold all that he had, and it was terrible, and he wept over it. But he knew that joy was coming eventually, and so it was all okay, and it was worth it. No, no. Joy comes first, not after. The radical selling off of everything, it's done from joy. Not hope for a future joy, but a very real and present joy. Now, y'all, here's the truth. If we don't actually hold up Jesus as our true and greatest treasure... This kind of joy is never going to make any sense to us. We may experience little bursts of joy along the way in life. Certainly as Christians, we're hoping for future joy in heaven, sure. But this kind of joy, this radical joy, a joy so strong that it's willing to lose everything else, that's not ever going to make sense to me or you unless Jesus is our true treasure. You know, there's a, there's a great and famous story in the Gospels that, that supports this. I mean, it's, it's as clear as day in the story of the rich young ruler. It's a story that a lot of us are familiar with. If, you, if you've been around church for very long, you've, you've probably heard the, about the rich young ruler. It's a man who comes to Jesus, Mark chapter 10, he comes to Jesus with a what seems like maybe a noble pursuit. He says, Teacher, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him, Well, keep the commandments. <laughs> And the man replies, well, I've kept all the commandments since I was a boy. What else? There must be something more. What more, Jesus? Mark 10, 21. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. 
and come, follow me. But at these words he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. You know, this man comes to Jesus. He comes to Jesus not looking for salvation, not looking for a savior. He's looking for advice, right? He wants Jesus to be his consultant to help him along in his spiritual pursuits. But when Jesus touches the nerve of this man's true treasure, you notice what happens? The guy doesn't get offended. He doesn't get angry. He grieves. He becomes sad and he grieves. Even though Jesus was offering him treasure in heaven, abundant eternal joy. What an offer. But this man had no category for a treasure that was greater than what he already possessed. And the thought of losing it grieved him. It was more than he could stand. Now, y'all, in 37 years, you know, I've never met a single person who says, you know, I really see myself in the rich young ruler. (laughs) Nobody wants to be the rich young ruler. We, we see him as something different than what we are. I'm not that greedy. I'm not that selfish. He's bad. He walks away from Jesus. He turns Jesus down flat. I would never do that. But y'all, just, just for a second, can we hold up a mirror here? If I treat God as a consultant, if you come to Jesus as your personal assistant, and I think a lot of times we do this, We say, I I need some wisdom, I need some guidance, I need some help, I need some healing or some encouragement, so I'm going to come to God. But as soon as God makes a demand on my life, I shrink away. I take no joy in that. I take no joy in His command because God is threatening something that I really treasure. Just like in this story, Jesus goes after the one thing He knew the man wouldn't give up. And if God makes a demand on me that is, that is greater than He is in my own heart, then I'm going to grieve it. Whether it be my, my, my money, my comfort, my ambition, my sin, I'll grieve the thought of losing it. I'll take no joy in the thought of losing it. Because it, whatever it is, it is at least equal to or greater than God. You see why the joy in this parable makes no sense to us? If Jesus is not our greatest treasure? Y'all, this is more true of us, I think, than we'd like to admit. If the treasure is not there, then the joy will not follow. Now, now how do we turn the corner here? How, How does a person go from the rich young ruler to the man who joyfully sells all that he has? Well, Come back with me to the whole purpose of the parable. What's the purpose of Jesus telling us these stories? He's showing us what his kingdom is like. He's giving us a glimpse of the kingdom. What does it really mean to be in the kingdom of heaven? That's that's the issue. That's the question. Well, Jesus gives us a glimpse right here, but I want to show you also something the Apostle Paul said specifically about the kingdom of heaven. Uh, It comes from Colossians chapter 1. This is really, for me, a life-changing verse. It continues to affect me very deeply. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. Listen to this. This is a gospel proclamation here. Paul says, 
For God rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We see what that says. To be a Christian means not that you check a box on a survey, not that you merely confess a generic belief. No, to be a Christian means you have been rescued from the kingdom of darkness, of sin and death and rebellion, and you've been transferred to a new kingdom. You haven't just turned up the degree on your spiritual diligence, that you used to be bad and now you're not quite as bad, that you used to go to church a couple of times a year and now you go to church all the time. No, it's not a change in degree. You've been changed truly entirely. You live in a different realm. God has made you a citizen of a new kingdom, the kingdom of his beloved son. And now because we don't live in a, you know, we, don't, we live in a democracy, right? So we don't really think about this very often. But what does it mean to be in a kingdom? It means that someone else has sovereign authority over your life, right? There's a king. The king rule and reign over his people, which means there's nothing off limits to the king. There's nothing a king cannot command of you that you then are obligated to give, right? That's, that's, the, that's the, the idea of, of a king and a kingdom. And this is, of course, this is why you, you can't add Jesus into your life as a personal consultant, right? He's not your advisor. The Bible says he's a king. The, the Jesus as consultant, as advisor idea, that's something we've made up. That is not in the Bible. He's a king. But look at what this king does. And this is so absolutely essential for us to see. What does this king do? The king we call Jesus, he rescues us out of darkness and ushers us fully into his light, his kingdom. In him, Paul says, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, what kind of king uses his authority like that? In Philippians chapter 2, we're told that Jesus actually emptied himself to take on the form of a slave, and he humbled himself to take on a cross, and he did that for us. In 2 Corinthians, we're told that Jesus was rich, divinely, eternally rich. Yet for your sake, he became poor. So that you, through his poverty, you might become rich. Jesus himself said that he did not come to earth to be served like any normal king, but he came to serve us and to give his life as our ransom. Yo, what kind of king is this? This is the kind of king so, so rich in love that, that he pursues his lost and rebellious enemies, those who are living in darkness, and he graciously brings them into himself, into his kingdom. This is the kind of king who, who adopts us as his family. We are not just his servants in this kingdom. He brings us into the royal family, and we are now called children of God. This is the kind of king who grants to us to share in his wealth, his riches, his glory for all eternity. We get to be a part of that. 
We don't just admire him from afar, but he brings us into all of his wealth and glory forever. This is the kind of king we're talking about here. And, and this is, y'all, this is why this parable today really is, is natural. It may not feel natural to see a man who discovers this treasure, a merchant who finds this pearl, and from joy over it, what do they do? They go and sell everything. In order to possess this treasure, they liquidate all they have. They lose it all. Now, I don't know about you, but that part, especially that part at the end, that feels very unnatural and even scary. This is the part of the parable that always makes me nervous. It makes me queasy. Sell everything? Give up everything? But y'all, listen, what Jesus is describing here is natural. It's just, it's, it's absolute commitment. It's not, it's not really about money per se, although that's not off limits to God. Our money's not off limits to Him. But the parable's not about money. It's about, it's about total surrender. It's about rolling all of your life, all of your weight onto Jesus. Complete submission to your King. Absolute commitment. Well, that's, that's violating, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's terrifying, Right? Not if you know your king. Not if you know Jesus. The Jesus who has absolute divine authority over every single ounce of your life, and he does. But the same Jesus who gladly gave every ounce of his own life to redeem you, to forgive you, to sanctify you, and glorify you. Y'all, this is is what makes the parable so beautiful. When we discover this treasure, when we are transferred into His kingdom, the impossible value of His grace changes everything. It's impossible to us because we know we're unworthy of it. We know we couldn't earn it. We know there's not enough good we could do to achieve it. It's impossible. But that's what makes it so wonderful. It busts every category we have, every category of God and religion, all of our worldview, everything changes. And the joy of knowing that we have this treasure, that it's been granted to us as a gift, it puts the rest of the world in perspective, doesn't it? It's meant to. To truly see who Jesus is and what he's done, to grasp his worth, to rest on his certain promises, What is there in the world that can compare? I mean, really. What is there that can compare or compete with that, with Him? What could Jesus command of you that is more precious to you than Him? What could He ask of you that's better than what He's already given you? What could you possibly lose that would not be a happy trade-off if you had Him? You know, that's, Paul makes this audacious statement in Philippians 3 about his own life. It's his own personal testimony. He says, I consider, I count all things in this world to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Who, who, who says something like that? Who really believes that? Someone who understands, who grasps, who sees and savors the treasure of Jesus. Nothing else in the world compares. It's all rubbish, Paul says by comparison, 
in order that I may gain Christ and may be found in him. That's what this parable is about. That's what life in the kingdom is meant to be. Now, now maybe, maybe you are like me, and, and this parable, you've always thought of this parable as, as very cute. But maybe now today we look at it in fresh ways, and it's, it's unsettling. It feels threatening even. Um, because you don't see yourself in this parable the way you know you should. Y'all, can we just honestly assess our hearts this morning? That same for you as it is for me. It's entirely possible that we've tried to make God our consultant rather than our king. We've tried to make Jesus our personal assistant rather than our Savior and our Lord. And there is no category for that. The Bible does not allow that. God does not allow it. He will not consult you. He will not advise you apart from his saving grace and his kingship, his lordship over your life. Um, Tim Keller has said it like this. Christianity is uh, is not about giving a little and then getting a little in return. I think that's so often how we approach it. I'll give a little to God and God will give a little back to me. Meaning, you know, I'll go to church, I'll read my Bible, I'll do the things I know God wants me to do, and then maybe God will give me some things in return. I'll confess a little sin, and God will give me a little forgiveness. That we have very small ambitions when it comes to our understanding of faith. But no, Keller says no, Christianity is nothing less than giving your entire life to God. All of it. And that's a natural thing for us to do when we realize what the gospel says. The gospel says that Jesus Christ has acted first by giving his entire life for you. What is it now for you to give everything to God when you see a God unobligated who in love simply chose to give everything for you? To redeem you, to forgive you, to bring you into his kingdom, the kingdom of light the kingdom of Jesus, to share in his riches and his glory forever. You see how we could say this. The most natural thing in the world now is to give everything to him because we've discovered a treasure so impossibly valuable that it produces in our hearts an overwhelming joy and an absolute commitment. This is the normal Christian life. This is what God wants to produce in our heart. This is why it's more than a checkbox on a survey or a simple confession of belief. It is an all-encompassing treasure and joy and life commitment. And we should praise God for it. You know, as we close today, can I, can I remind you, and be, let's be very clear here, that Jesus does not save you according to the level of your commitment. Okay? We might mistake that in the parable. This parable is not about earning something that Jesus has come to give us. No. Our salvation is an entirely free gift that we receive by faith in Christ. And so maybe maybe you're here and, and you know, deep in your heart, you know this about yourself, that the treasure and the joy and the life that this parable describes, this is not true of you where you sit. 
And that's, that's the most important recognition you'll ever come to. That's the most important confession you can ever make. That this right here is not true of me. But today it can be. It can be. Not on the basis of your commitment. Not by you gritting your teeth and clenching your fists and trying so much harder to be good. No, that will never get you there. Jesus said, This is the will of God, that whoever sees me and believes in me may have eternal life. Jesus presents to us his salvation freely. It is not earned or achieved. It's received by his grace. And I want to invite you to do just that. To roll all of your weight, your life, onto him today. To trust him for who he is and what he's done. Listen, Jesus went first. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Your commitment is not what gets you into the kingdom. His commitment gets you in. His life given for you brings you out of darkness and into light. May we trust him today for this precious gift. In his name, amen.